So last time we finished discussing um, the aspects of the cardiac cycle. We did a little bit of uh, hemodynamics, how the blood flows inside the blood vessels, some formulas, which the most important thing about the formulas is understand the relationship between the different concepts and uh, practical applications of all these basically what we know as the blood pressure and there are specific problems that can happen conditions that are associated with the blood pressure we have had the lab on blood pressure measurement and we've seen how we take this blood pressure using the brachial artery for that and we listen different sounds that are made when the blood starts to recirculate after we compress the brachial artery with the blood pressure cuff. And the turbulence is the one that it makes this sound and allows us to measure first the systolic pressure, which is the first sound, is the blood making that sound. The moment it recirculates, it means that the blood pressure cuff is not tight now and it's letting the blood flow. The first amount of blood that flows flows with turbulence, and that's the moment that the blood equalizes the pressure exerted by the cuff. And that's the systolic pressure. But then when we keep uh, releasing the air of the blood pressure cuff, the blood will continue flowing until it restores its flow, continuous flow, and the sounds will disappear, no more turbulence. And that's the moment we measure the diastolic pressure, when the sounds disappear completely. These sounds are called the Karakov sounds. There are five different types. Uh, but we care most uh, is about the first sound and the last sound. And as a standard, we say blood pressure 120 over 80. That's a number that we usually say and consider normal. This is just another graph to show how the sounds, the first sound and the last sound, is related with the turbulent flow that the blood has during that moment that we measure the blood pressure. Now, when we take the pulse, when we take the pulse, we feel, we palpate the radial artery here at uh, the level of the wrist. What we feel are, uh, what we feel is how the artery, radial artery, dilates and con contracts, right? dilates and then relaxes. And that dilation is, or stretching of the walls is because of the blood pressure. But we can count how many times we feel that with our fingers, and we can use that as a translation of the heart rate. Now, what we feel is actually the effect of the blood pressure. And there are some correlation, people with uh, different values of blood pressure, where you can feel different types of pulse. Like someone with a very high blood pressure, you can feel the pulse is really strong. People with low blood, low blood pressure, you can feel the pulse really mild and soft and almost uh, not feel it sometimes. Now, pulse pressure is that term that defines that event by which we feel the pulse. Meaning that if you have your blood pressure in 120 over 80, the difference is 40. That 40, that difference is what it makes you feel the pulse. 
if it were 140 over 80, the difference will be six, uh, uh, 60. And you will probably feel the pulse stronger. So that's the meaning of the pulse pressure. Higher the pulse pressure, you will feel it stronger. And again, it's a reflection of the stroke volume, which we define as the blood that is pumped by the ventricle every time it beats, it contracts. We use this number sometimes to make correlations. So we take the blood pressure, then we quickly calculate the pulse pressure, and we can inspect some things when we take the pulse um, and make the correlation. Another concept related with the blood pressure is this one called mean arterial pressure, which is the average. But that average is not a simple average. It's not like uh, grabbing systolic plus diastolic and divided by two. It's not like that. Why? Because the blood vessels first, it's not a single pipe. There are many vessels with different diameter, different length, and so applying some mathematical calculations, uh, which are actually deriving from calculus, we end up with another formula, and that is the formula of the mean arterial pressure, which is diastolic pressure plus one-third of the pulse pressure. Now, what is the importance of this? This is very important because it actually tells us, um, this pressure is telling us how much blood each organ, each tissue of the body is receiving effectively. Like if we plug in some numbers here, imagine that someone has 120 over 80, and what is the mean arterial pressure? If someone has that pressure, I may wonder, okay, systolic is 120, diastolic is 80, but what is the pressure that the kidney, what is the pressure of the blood entering the kidneys? 120 or 80, or just a simple average. That's what the mean arterial pressure is useful for. It tells you how, what is the pressure, the effective pressure that the blood is having when entering an, an organ, and that depends how much blood flow the organ is receiving, how much nutrients, how much oxygen, and all that. And if we make this calculation, 120 over 80, we will have diastolic is 80, plus one-third of the pulse pressure. What is the pulse pressure here? 40. What is this number? 80 plus 13 times 3 is 39. So this will be 13.3. And that's the mean arterial pressure in this case is 93.3. Or 93 if you want to round it up. And is not the same as a single average, because just a simple average will be 120 plus 80, 200, divided by two, 100. It's not 100, it's 93. So that's a special formula for mean arterial pressure. And nowadays, we cannot, I mean, we, we don't calculate, we, we don't make these calculations. This is shown automatically in the machines that we use for taking the blood pressure. And the next time you see these machines, take a look at them, and in one of the corners, you will find this number. MAP is uh, abbreviated, mean arterial pressure. And you have it there. So if someone has 120 over 80, 93 is the effective pressure that the, uh, that the blood is having when getting into the organs. And as an example, the kidneys. 
for instance, they need at least blood flowing with a pressure of 60, mean arterial pressure of 60. If it's lower than 60, the kidneys may be suffering, maybe not receiving enough amount of blood, enough amount of oxygen, not enough irrigation, and the kidneys will start suffering to the risk of renal failure. So that's the importance of this. That is the importance of this mean arterial pressure. So let's, let's speak now about some problems with the blood pressure. And the first of all, hypertension or high blood pressure. This is a problem that many people have, have nowadays and uh, it, it is more common with the age. And if it's not treated and it remains high for a long time, it will be a problem for three organs basically, for the heart, for the kidneys, and for the brain. And that tells you the complications that you can see, cardiac disease, kidney disease, renal failure, stroke. So heart, kidney, and brain are the ones that suffer, nervous system in general, suffer uh, for uh, hypertension. And there are two types of hypertension, when we explain this as a condition, primary and secondary. Secondary is a type of hypertension where we identify something which is the cause of that, like maybe problems in the kidney. Problems in the kidney may give, as a consequence, high blood pressure. We fix the problem in the kidney and the, kid and the hypertension or high blood pressure is fixed. But there are a number of people, and this is the most, that have essential or primary hypertension. It's not a single organ, it's not a, something that we can fix quickly. It's a very complex mechanism that involves uh, deposits of material under the blood vessels, hyperreactivity, involvement of the nervous system, autonomic nervous system, uh, complications of diabetes. It is very complex. And so in this case of essential or primary hypertension, we actually don't cure the disease. In most of the cases, we just treat it. And treat it and prevent the complications. We try to keep the blood pressure at normal levels, normal range, and especially to prevent all these complications. This is a table that classifies the different types of or, or levels of high blood pressure or hypertension. And uh, this is what is used to diagnose high blood pressure in someone. What is considered normal is, and we get the numbers again here, 120 over 80. But notice that the, the table says it is normal when the systolic is under 120 and the diastolic is under 80. If someone has between 120 and 140, that is considered pre-hypertension. Systolic 120 over, uh, 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 or from 120 to 139 and diastolic from 80 to 89. Meaning, if someone has 130 over 85, that sometimes is considered normal, but it's actually considered pre-hypertension. Now, we have to be careful with this because many people may have 130 over 85 at a single measurement. For diagnosing high blood pressure in someone, we need to take at least three measurements in 
different days, usually in three different weeks. Same, same day of the week, let's say you take the blood pressure to someone every Monday for three weeks. Making sure that the same person is taking the blood pressure with the same equipment in the same place and under the same conditions. If after these three measurements, the pressure is still 130 over 85, then you can tell that's pre-hypertension. But if you take a single measurement now, you get 130 over 85, and then tomorrow or next week, you find 110 over 60, well, that's just transitory change uh, of the blood pressure, which happens all the time. And if we go over this number, get into 140, more than 140, more than 90 is when we diagnose this as hypertension. And there are different stages, stage one, stage two, when it's higher than 160 and 100. All this leads to the different treatments. In the first case, it's normal, no, no treatment is required. In the second case, pre-hypertension maintains lifestyle modification. There's many factors that can help to control the blood pressure in the initial pre-hypertension stage. Light, weight reduction, reduction in the dietary fat and increased consumption of vegetables, reduction in dietary salt, engaging in exercise at least 30 minutes a day, most days of the week, and moderation of alcohol consumption, smoking also. And there are many people that had pre-hypertension and after changing their lifestyle, after three months or six months, they go back to normal blood pressure. And that's very important for this. Because there are many people walking around with prehypertension. They don't do anything about it. And then when they get to 140 over 90, most of the cases they need to receive drug therapy. And that's a irreversible point. They need to keep that for the rest of their lives. But before that, there's still a chance to go back to normal if some of the risks or lifestyle risks are, are, are changed. Now, causes of secondary hypertension are many. We can give some examples here. Kidneys, kidney disease, renal artery disease, endocrine. There may be excessive aldosterone. It's usually very uncommon things. Most of the time, if someone has hypertension, it's essential or primary. But still, I mean, when someone is found hypertension, we look for some cause. If we don't find any of these causes, then we say, okay, this may be an essential or primary hypertension. There are some facts related with the presence of essential hypertension, which is not one cause. There are many things that are related to that, and that's what the studies show, like increased salt intake, with uh, decreased kidney filtering ability, increased sympathetic nerve activity. There's some people that have primary hypertension because of excessive activity of the sympathetic nervous system, or the blood vessels response, the endothelium um, will release regulators or growth factors that will stimulate constriction of the smooth muscle of the blood vessel increase total peripheral resistance, all the blood vessels at all levels will constrict and cause this uh, problem of hypertension. 
And what happens with the time is that three organs, as we mentioned, are affected. The heart first, because the heart has to hard, uh, work harder every time. If the total peripheral resistance increases, that means after load is increased, <coughs> heart has to pump stronger to fight against that uh, increased peripheral resistance. And with the time, with the time, the ventricle, the ventricles are overloaded. And if a muscle is working excessively, it will grow, it will become hypertrophic. One of the stages, if we, get, if we see the heart of someone with high blood pressure after some years, we will notice that the thickness of the left ventricle is increased. It's just working harder. But then later, that heart, subject to increase after low for a long time, it will start failing. It will get overstretched, and arrhythmias will start, will appear, and the same heart will fail completely. Congestive heart failure is the final uh, damage uh, stage of, uh, of the heart. These are some of the treatments. Lifestyle first. Uh, different other drug therapy includes uh, diuretics to eliminate fluid from the body. Beta blockers decrease the cardiac rate, and ACE inhibitors to block the production of this angiotensin II, which increases aldosterone and increases the blood pressure. So these are medications like lisinopril, enalapril, captopril that are used. But the treatment has to be personalized. In most of the cases, we need to find out if someone has just the hypertension or has another uh, disease like diabetes or the age, factors to consider uh, when we give treatment for hypertension. High blood pressure is one thing, low blood pressure is another thing. But low blood pressure is not actually a disease that we define by the numbers. The numbers will tell us the pressure is low, but we have to be careful with that because many people have, in numbers, low blood pressure. Especially people that are very skinny, they have uh, uh, not much muscle around the arm, you can measure 80 over 50 or 80 over 60, which is actually low. But for that person, it's enough. That person is fine. So if someone is doing the regular activities every day, and you take the blood pressure and you find 80 over 60, and you repeat it and it's always the same, that's their baseline. That's normal for them. Now, if someone else, if someone else, you measure 120 over 60, 120 over 70, well, that's normal for that person. If you find someone with 8 over 50 or 8 over 60, and that person is dizzy or unconscious, that is called hypotension. Hypotension. And we use specifically that term, hypotension. And, uh, some people miss, uh, have a mistake, a misconception that if 
they have their blood pressure measured and they find 80 over 60, they say, oh, I have low blood pressure. And that's something that I, it's a condition of me, it's low blood pressure. Well, this number is low, but that's normal for you. It's not a condition that you say low blood pressure. Um, some others associate this with some symptoms that they may have. They say, I'm tired all the time, I'm cold all the time, and that's because I have 80 over 60, 80 over 50. No, that's not true. It's not, there's no correlation with that. You probably have anemia if you are too tired, or you're working too much, you're not sleeping enough, or you're too cold, and maybe other things. But not necessarily is that. Now, if someone has hypotension, of course, they're going to be cold, they're going to be like dizzy, sleepy, but that's not their baseline. Many people just their baseline. And that's important because if someone has a baseline, 80 over 60, and all of a sudden you find 120 over 80, then they may be having high blood pressure because the delta, the difference, is what it counts. If, I, if my normal blood pressure is 110 over 70, and then I am found to have 150, 150 over 90, 110, 150, there's a 40 of difference. If someone has 80 over 50, that's their baseline, and they have 120 over 80, this is the same difference of 40. So that may be hypertension for that person. And sometimes that happens. People come with headaches and symptoms to the emergency, and we measure the blood pressure, 120 over 80. Oh, that's normal. No, that's not normal. That person is having hypertension. We don't know their baseline. If the baseline is 80 over 60, they may be in trouble. So that's something important to, to know, especially what your baseline is. And uh, every time they take your blood pressure, you can tell that your blood pressure is normal. Say, no, it's, it's, that's high for me because I, I have a low baseline. Now, if there is hypotension with all these symptoms, that means there is poor perfusion, poor circulation of blood to your body. And that's when we start talking about shock. Shock means that the blood is not reaching the organs, the tissues, properly. And the problem is that the blood flow decrease will lead to low oxygenation of the blood, low oxygenation of the tissues. And then we'll start having symptoms. All the symptoms like dizziness, loss of consciousness, even chest pain, and will lead to death if we don't do anything about it. If there is something related with the blood vessels or heart, we call it circulatory shock. And the signs are shown here. The early signs and late signs. That's another thing. Because if someone has an acute loss of blood, like uh, any accident, well, the early signs will be decreased pulse pressure, increased diastolic pressure, and if we make tests, we will find decreased sodium concentration, increases volatility, just to compensate. And in terms of the effect of the poor perfusion, some other symptoms will be restlessness, the skin gets warm, dry, but it's an early sign. Late sign will be decreased stomach pressure, and that's when we find this hypotension. In the urine, there will be decreased volume person will not urinate, will not produce urine because the body's trying to retain all the water to compensate or try to compensate. And related to the symptoms, this is the moment that the skin is cold, clammy, and the senses are cloudy, there's a dizziness and loss of consciousness. 
If there is a shock, there will be mechanisms to try to compensate. And those are, well, if there is a lack of circulation, the heart will start pumping faster. Increased cardiac rate and increased stroke volume. If we remember the formulas from last time, cardiac output, heart rate times stroke volume. So if we want to send more blood, increase cardiac output, then it increases the heart rate and the stroke volume. And that's what happens as a compensatory mom, uh, thing for the shock. Digestive tract and skin, vasoconstriction. Vasoconstriction because the blood has to be diverted into the vital organs, which are the brain, the heart, and kidneys. So the skin gets cold, the skin gets pale, all the blood is trying to be redirected for the vital organs. And the kidneys will decrease the production of urine. Again, in order to keep all the water possible to compensate the loss. And that's very important. When we find someone in shock, let's say in an accident, bleeding a lot, uh, when the paramedics get there initially, the first thing they do is to put an IV and start infusing fluids, saline, until they get to the emergency. In the emergency, what they do is keep with the fluids and they put a catheter in the bladder. For what? To measure the amount of urine that that person will make in the next six hours. If urine production is fine, that means that that person is recovering properly. But in the next six hours, sometimes there's no production of urine at all. That means those kidneys are trying to keep the water most as possible. And sometimes, it was a long time before that person received help, the kidneys are suffering already. And they will take longer to recover. And that person will stay with the catheter for some days because we need to measure how much urine the kidney is producing in every six hours, every 24 hours if the kidney is, is recovering or not. Hypovolemic shock, this definition stands for whenever or whatever cause that decreases the, vol the volume of fluids like dehydration, burns, loss of an important amount of blood, And here is when we find the symptoms or signs decrease cardiac output and decrease blood pressure. The blood is diverted to heart and brain. Compensation includes the baroreceptor reflex. Heart rate will be increased. Increased peripheral resistance, vasoconstriction. The skin will constrict the blood vessels of the skin uh, in order to direct all the fluid, all the blood to the vital organs. But sometimes we see shock and we don't see any loss of blood or volume or anything. person is well hydrated, is not bleeding, uh, but in some cases there is an infection, an infection that is generalized in many organs and systems, and that's what we call sepsis. This, some of these bacteria, they make endotoxins that will cause widespread vasodilation. 
if the blood vessels dilate, that will lead that will lead to hypotension. And if there is hypotension, at some point it will be defined as shock. In this case, it's called septic shock because of the presence of an infection, and which has the same effect because the heart will not will not receive enough enough amount of blood preload, uh, and it will not pump enough blood. The cardiac output is decreased. And it's the same, the same reactions. We see increased uh, heart rate, and, but the blood pressure is not responding, and that's because of this infection. Many cases of this septic shock, hard to recover. Mortality at this point is really high. Yes, the nitric oxide is a substance that is produced by the endothelial cells and as a regulator of the vasoconstriction, in this case, vasodilation of the blood vessels. But these bacteria, the endotoxins, will increase the production of nitric oxide, so vasodilation prevails, prevails over vasoconstriction. In other causes of circulatory shock, are listed here like allergic reactions. In this case, it's called anaphylactic shock. Vasodilation, the same mechanism is vasodilation. But in this case, produced by the release of histamine. It's part of the allergic reaction. This substance, histamine, is released and that will make the blood vessels dilate excessively and the blood pressure gets very low. And this is much easier to treat because anaphylactic shock, if it's uh, detected in time, will give medications to increase the blood pressure and to control the allergic reaction. There are many people that have allergic reactions, severe allergic reactions, that get into anaphylactic shock. And they are quickly treated and everything is fine. What are the symptoms of anaphylactic shock? Sorry? The same symptoms. You lose consciousness, get dizzy. In this case, if it's vasodilation, you get your skin gets warm first, and then the next minutes will get cold. And uh, usually, there is the correlation with some event, like you you ate something or you received some medication or something like that. So this why some, some get Yes, that's, that, that's another thing about anaphylactic shock because since there's vasodilation, the other thing that the histamine will make is to produce swelling of the respiratory system and the swelling of the larynx and trachea. And that makes it difficult to breathe. And that's where you start getting hypoxic and turning like purple lips and problems with respiration. Spinal cord injury, anesthesia may cause neurogenic shock. The neurogenic shock is uh, due to the loss of sympathetic stimulation. Sometimes when there is a very severe damage of some part of the nervous system or when there is an, uh, a traumatic amputation of some part of our body, uh, there's a direct damage to the nerves, the important nerves, and that is a reaction will make the sympathetic nervous system lose control and there will be widespread vasodilation and the person will have shock. 
and the person will lose consciousness. And sometimes that we see that when someone has a traumatic amputation of the hand, it loses consciousness. Loses consciousness. It's automatic. It's a reaction. It's a shock. Neurogenic shock. And for uh, cardiac problems, like some disease in the heart, like someone with uh, 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 cardiomyopathy, which may be congenital sometimes, or damage of the myocardial cells, then the, car the heart is not pumping properly. And in that case, it's called cardiogenic shock. Like someone with myocardial infarction, let's say it's a massive infarction, big portion of the ventricle is affected and is not pumping enough blood. And that's called cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock produced by myocardial infarction. Now this term, congestive heart failure, we use it when for many different reasons, the heart fails. Fails to pump enough blood to the circulation. Cardiac output is not maintained. And causes, some of them listed here, myocardial infarction, congenital defect, hypertension after a long time, problems with the heart valves, or even Problems with electrolytes may cause congestive heart failure. And if there's not enough cardiac output, well, that's the definition of hypovolemic shock. And that's what these people have sometimes. Now, it comes a point where heart is not able to pump enough amount of blood, decreased cardiac output, and has all the symptoms of a shock. Hypovolemic shock. And we see the heart enlarged because the walls have been overstretched. And when the muscle is overstretched, cannot pump properly. And sometimes we use these terms to be more precise or where the heart is failing. If it's a left side failure or right uh, side failure. Usually, if it's a hypertension for a long time, the peripheral resistance increased, so the left ventricle has problems to pump the blood first. And that heart may have left side failure initially. But then with the time, the left ventricle is getting so tired and it's not pumping enough. But the left ventricle is receiving blood from the lungs all the time, which are receiving blood from the right side of the heart. So if the left side is not pumping the blood effectively, so the blood that is coming back from the body will start dilating the right side of the heart. And with the time, now it's a right side failure because the right atrial pressure and the right ventricle is congested and dilated. So what happens with the time, in the time is usually someone with hypertension, let's take example of hypertension for a long time, it starts having left side failure first. And with more time, the right side will start failing. And after 34 years, sometimes we see the whole heart will be failing. Now, this is in the case of someone with hypertension, very high levels, stage 2, not receiving proper treatment, and uh, the complication will happen. 